here's the basis of everything we're going to share in this series of messages because we're going to kick off this year talking about radical faith. F.F. Bosworth said it this way, uh, that faith begins where the will of God is known. What that means is faith is the foundation for everything we believe. Faith is the foundation or the word of God, the promises of God, and what God has said to us is the foundation. It is ground zero for everything that you and I can hope for or aspire to. Now, if God said in John chapter 10 and verse 10 that Jesus came so that you and I could have life and have it more abundantly, God has given us something that we can set our faith for. Steve Harvey said it just now. Not just to live, not just to exist, but to live. Not just to survive, but to thrive in every area of our lives. And if you stop long enough and begin to take some, some uh, self-reflection and introspection, I have to ask myself that question. Am I experiencing the abundant life that Jesus promised? Because if I'm not, if I'm not, then there's some room for me to grow. That means I have settled for less than God's best. If I'm not experiencing the abundant life in my relationships, in my marriage, in my emotions, then I've stopped short of the promise of God. Because God's desire for each of us, not only in 2017, but even beyond, in fact, God's desire for each of us every day we live is that we will experience the abundant life that he promised. And that promise is not just for the sweet by and by. It's for the here and now. Jesus said, and that word that's translated abundant life is a Greek word, zoe, life as God has it. It doesn't speak of necessarily of the duration of life, even though that's a part of it. But what Jesus was referencing specifically is that he came and he died on the cross so that we could experience a certain quality of life. That no matter how long you and I live on the earth, his desire is not that we simply get by. He wants us to thrive. He wants us to experience Zoe, life as God has it. He wants us to experience his peace. He wants us to experience his joy. He wants us to experience fulfillment in life, not just barely getting by. And so in the series of messages, what we will discover is that radical faith that is based on the word of God will allow us to access the promises of God. Radical faith simply means that at some point, you and I must decide to jump. And unless you make that choice to jump, Unless you and I make that choice to do something radically different, we will not experience the radically better life that God already has prepared for us. The life that's already available to us. So this morning, as we begin this series, Radical Faith, we're going to examine the lives of four unlikely candidates for a move of God. And this morning, our anchor text is lifted from the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 6. I'm going to read several verses quickly 
to give context to what I'm about to share about these four men. So what I read is just a little bit of a background. And as I read these words, I want you to place yourself in the story. And, and maybe I, I even want you to compare the text, what we read in the text, to maybe something that you're experiencing now that may be overwhelming and daunting. And come to the recognition that no matter how difficult it has been, God can turn it around and we can expect radically better if we'll simply make the choice to do something radically different. Most times we go through life and we think it's all up to God. But every miracle God ever did, he did in concert with somebody simply trusting him. God works through the hands of men, through the hearts of men, ordinary men like you and me, to fulfill his purpose in the earth. And so as we read the text, I want you to not only identify with the prevailing circumstances, but I also want you to identify with these individuals and recognize this morning that you are a candidate for a radically different and radically better life. And it starts right now. All right. Missed a good opportunity to get excited there, City Church. But check this out, 2 Kings chapter number 6. Uh, and I just switched translations on you. I'm going to be reading from the New King James. Uh, here's the situation, y'all. 2 Kings chapter 6, beginning at verse 24. 2 Kings chapter 6, 624. I'm going to read the rest of it all the way to 33. 24 through 33. Are y'all ready for the word this morning? Here we go. And it happened. Can we just stop right there? Isn't that the way life usually unfolds? It just kind of happens, unscripted and without warning. Most of us find ourselves in a place today that wasn't a part of the story that we planned. And you've heard me share about this great 20th century philosopher who said, everybody has a plan until they get hit. And that 20th century philosopher was none other than Mike Tyson. And most of us have a plan until life hits us. When the suddenlies of life interrupt our plans. And that's exactly what we're observing in the text. It says, and it happened after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria. Thank you, sir. And indeed, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth of a cab of dove droppings were five shekels of silver. Somebody say deep recession. Mm -hmm. Verse number 26, and before we get there, have you ever found yourself in a place in your own life personally? You might be grappling with it right now. When in the moment, you saw absolutely no way 
out. That's what they're dealing with in Samaria. Not only is there a severe famine in Samaria, but they are under siege. They are under occupation. And these guys are eating dove droppings, and they're paying for it too. They're eating donkey heads. Can I just stop for a moment and say, no matter how bad you think you got it, somebody's got it worse than you. Can I stop for a second and, and say that if you recognize that, you would probably be a little more grateful than you have been? Do you recognize that gratitude is the attitude that determines your altitude in life? That your gratitude for what you have, no matter how little, will determine your outlook and your perspective on life? I want you to consider this. Have you ever been in a situation like what this text describes? If you haven't, you have room somewhere in your life to be grateful to God for what you do have and not become bitter toward God for what you don't have. Part of what has to change for us is our outlook on life. Because our outlook will always determine our outcomes. If we're going to experience the radically better life, one of the places that we have to stop, even now, is to stop long enough to just say, thank you for what I have. I may not have everything I want, but I'm thankful for what I do have. The roof over my head, the clothes on my back, the shoes on my feet. That some kids in parts of the world, like where I'm from, have never worn. And they might be eight, nine, ten years old and have never owned a pair of shoes. While we got stuff in our closet, two years old, that still got tags on it and still want more and upset that we can't have more. One of the most lucrative businesses right here in North Texas is storage units. I have a friend who is a multimillionaire and he's a partner in Advantage Storage. And there are people who store stuff in those storage units. Not just one, not just two. Multiple storage units that will be equivalent to our house payments. And they have stuff. And this, ain't, I've co- this is coming from the owner of this storage unit that there are people who have stuff in storage units that are sitting there for years and their monthly payment is equivalent to most of our mortgages for stuff they store up and never use. Uh, Let me continue the story because I digress. I digress. Uh Oh, look at verse 26. Then as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, help my Lord, O king. And he said, if the Lord doesn't help you, where can I find help for you? And I know that some of us have been in that place before. Where there is no human assistance that can turn it around. 
This is what they're experiencing. And the king says to them, if God doesn't do this for you, it can't be done. Sorry, I can't help you. Hmm. Oh, uh, uh. all right. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me go a little bit further. Uh, verse 28, then the king said to her, what's troubling you? And she answered, this woman said to me, give me your son that we may eat him today. And we will eat my son tomorrow. Somebody say it's rough up in them streets. <laughs> These streets. <laughs> All right. We can eat Levi today. Right. Exactly. That's what I said. And tomorrow we eat your baby. Am I making this up or is this in the Bible? Right. Have you ever found yourself in that place where you were? Tempted to resort to cannibalism? Let's be grateful for what we have. Let's be grateful for such things as we have. Okay, let's continue the story. Uh, so, so we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her the next day, give your son that we may eat him. But she hid her son. Somebody said, that's my girl. Yeah. <laughs> she hid her son. Uh, so, so, is, so now it happened when the king heard the words of the woman that he tore his clothes as he passed on the wall and the people looked and there underneath he had sackcloth on his body, which signifies deep mourning and remorse and desperation that the king himself was unable to fix it for them. Verse 31, then he said, God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. He's starting to blame the prophet for their problems. And he's going to take matters into his hands. He continues in verse 32, but Elisha was sitting in his house and the elders were sitting with him. And the king sent a man ahead of him. But before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, do you see how this son of a murderer has sent someone to take away my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold him fast at the door. Is it not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And verse 33 says, and while he was still talking with them, there was the messenger coming down to him. And then the king said, surely this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Now, what I've just painted for you from the text is a very grim and bleak situation. But man, it's starting to get better. It's about to get a whole lot better. And it begins in verse 1 of chapter 7. Then Elisha said, I want you to catch this city church. Then Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. Tomorrow, 24 hours later, 24 hours from this moment, as desperate and as um, overwhelming and as impossible as your circumstances seem, tomorrow about this time, a seer of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Elisha said, 24 hours from now, everything in your life, everything about your life is going to go from bad to good. Mm -hmm. Can I say something? about human nature, 
Sometimes, Tony, it seems like we got more faith that bad things are going to happen to us than we do that good things are going to happen to us. And we call people who believe that good things are going to happen fanatics. And we settle into this life where there's this expectation that things are going to be really bad. And don't say anything good about your future because you might jinx it. Yet God desires the very best for us. So listen to verse 1 now. He, he gives this word and he says, 24 hours from now, your life, your life will be radically different. How many of you realize that one word from God can change your life forever? It can change your life forever. Let me say something else that I posted on Instagram. Most of us are driven by sight, yet the scripture says we walk by faith and not by sight. You know why? Because sight is a function of our eyes. Faith is a function of the heart. Most of us are motivated and driven only by what we see. So that when God says this time tomorrow your life will be radically different, what we default to is what we can see. There's a famine. People are eating their children. Ain't no way this thing can turn around in 24 hours. Yet we have a word from the Lord. From the servant of God. That says this time tomorrow, your life will not only be radically different, but it's going to be radically better. I want you to hear that now. This time tomorrow, your life could be radically different and radically better. Some of us are still grappling with that. We're still grappling with that. Say, how, how is that possible? You know why? We're still seeing our lives through our natural eyes. And faith is a matter of the heart. If God said it, y'all, that settles it. If God says that I'm a candidate for the abundant life, that's all there is to it. There is no negotiation. There is no discussion. I embrace what God said is mine, the abundant life. And so the prophet says, this time tomorrow, your life will be radically different. Look at verse number two. So an officer on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, look, even if the Lord were to, to open up the windows of heaven, could this thing be? And the prophet said, in fact, you will see it happen with your eyes, but you won't eat it. Let me tell you, God is bringing all of us into a season when there will be those who see the miraculous power of God, but they won't taste it. It's available only to those who will simply take God at his word, and that's what radical faith is. Can I tell you something about the, the faith hall of fame? The things that God asked all these guys, the patriarchs of faith to do, was absolutely ridiculous. He asked a guy named Noah to build a big boat, and it had never even rained. And Noah, in obedience to God, built this boat for 40 years without one drop of rain, let alone a flood. Yeah. What if God is instructing you to do something radically different for which there is no precedent? You've got nowhere to look to say, oh, well, so-and-so did this before, so maybe God wants to do it through me. Noah had no precedent. He had no example, but he had a word from the Lord. Yeah. 
And God is speaking some things to some of us in this room and we're trying to rationalize it and say, how am I going to build a boat? And there's no rain. And Noah is building 40 years. And all he has is the word of the Lord. And all they had was a simple word that 24 hours from now, in spite of everything you're suffering now, in spite of everything you're experiencing now, in spite of the frustration and the struggle, your life can and will be radically different. The officer said, no, it's impossible. Even if God were to open the heavens, it wouldn't happen. And the prophet said, you know what? You'll see it, but you won't experience it. Mm. I'm going somewhere. We're almost there, but I had to set it up. And here's why. Most of us miss what God wants to do because we see our lives in a vacuum. We think that what we receive from God is only about us. But your obedience to God has a ripple effect that will impact everyone connected to you. Because there are people waiting on the other side of your obedience. Listen to this now. God says this time tomorrow, everything's going to change. What he didn't say was how it was going to happen. And most of us have a word from the Lord, but we don't have the blueprint for how it's going to happen. Sometimes God will give us illogical instructions. Our part is simply to obey the instruction and trust God with the outcome. And if God says build the boat, let God worry about the rain. If God says this time tomorrow, you'll have everything you need, let God work it out. And guess what God does? He works it out, though, because this is where the story starts. It's a story about four men, unlikely candidates who chose to jump. And it was their simple act of obedience, their choice to do something radically different that made life radically better for everyone else. I want you to hear that. Your choice to do something radically different in 2017 could be the thing that God uses to make life radically better for everyone else. I'll say that one more time. Your choice to do something radically different could be the very thing that God uses to make life radically better for everybody else. So here we are in 2 Kings chapter 7, and I'm about to wrap it up. Look at verse number 3. Now there were four lepers at the entrance of the gate. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? Can I stop for a second? They were the most unlikely, most unusual candidates for God to use. Society had ostracized them, Al. In fact, they were considered unclean because of their leprosy. Their condition had relegated them to the outskirts of the city, and most of them would sit at the city gates begging alms. Can you imagine how frustrating and painful it must have been to be a leper? Because at the city gates wasn't only where the leprous and all those who were considered unclean hung out. It was also where the most prominent stood and talked politics and talked commerce. Can you imagine having a skin condition 
and never being able to engage in any of those conversations? Can you imagine sitting at the gate day in and day out, month in and month out, year in and year out, and you see people enter the city and you see them exit the city and you see them stand at the gate and life seems to be perfect for them and every single day it's Groundhog Day because it seems to you that life is passing you by and all you ever get to do is witness it, but you never taste it for yourself. That was the lot of these four lepers. And I would venture to say, if we're honest with ourselves, there's some of us who are in that place today. You're sitting at the gate of life, and everyone else and everything else seems to be passing you by. It seems like God is doing it for everyone but you. It seems like God has done it for everyone but you. And so they're sitting at the gate. And something happens, Tony, because every radically different choice that you and I will make will begin with one thing. I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this because this is the three points that I'm going to give you, and I hope it will help you. Every radically different decision that you make in 2007 will begin with, a, I'm sorry, 2017, back to the future, in 2017 will begin with a moment of clarity. Can I say that again? Nothing in your life will change until you experience a moment of clarity. Listen to the four lepers. Why are we sitting here until we die? Let me tell you, let me tell you why most people experience pain year after year after year, after year, is because they never experienced that moment of clarity. Life hasn't become painful enough for you because this is what I know about pain. When life becomes painful enough, you will do everything within your power to stop the pain. Everyone in this room has a pain threshold. And the reason most of us stay at the gate and never do anything radically different is because we've not hit our pain threshold. But the moment you reach your pain threshold for life, you will come to the place where you begin to do something that is radically different. Man, we're going to sit here until we die? We're just going to sit here and do nothing? Now, let me tell you something about these guys. They had very few options. They were leprous. They were untouchable. They were unclean, but they recognized, I cannot continue to do the same thing over and over. So what am I saying? Clarity is always the catalyst for change. Clarity will accelerate the change process in your life. And until you get clarity about where you are and who you are and about your circumstances, nothing's going to change. Because let me tell you something, some of us can go nose blind to life. And there are things in your life and my life that are obvious to everybody else that we have become oblivious to. It's like the lady who walks around with lipstick on her teeth. It's like the guy who walks around with a booger in his nose. And no one will tell him. Nothing about my life changes until I come to my moment of clarity.
Okay, can, I, can I tell you about clarity? Uh, clarity is that critical moment in my life when change becomes inevitable and absolutely essential. Most of us don't change because we think we still got options. And we become comfortable where we are. So there's no, no need to change because we haven't come to that moment of clarity. Let me talk to you about change. Because this now, as a result of this moment of clarity, they're about to take some radical decisions. Verse 4 says, if we say we will enter the city, the famine is in the city. And we shall die there. If we sit here, we will die also. Now, therefore, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we will live. But if they kill us, we only going to die. Y'all hear that? Listen to what the leper said. If we stay here, 100% certainty, we're going to die. If I stay where I am, if I keep doing what I've done up until now, there is only one outcome. I will die. It speaks of how we manage our present circumstances. What the leper said is if we keep doing what we've always done, we will have what we've always had. If I don't have clarity about the present, I will continue to get more of the same. Uh oh, check this out. If we go to the city, if we go back to what we know and what's familiar, not just how you deal with the present, but clarity about how you deal with the past. He said we can't go back in the city because if we go back in the city, we'll die. How many of you realize that sometimes the worst thing you can do is go back to where you came from? But it's the easiest thing to do because back where you came from is predictable. It's something you can control. And for them, the only radical change they could make was to move forward. Listen to their estimation. If we stay here, we'll die. If we go back into the city where we came from, we're going to die. But if we go forward, if we go forward, there's a 50-50 chance that my life can be better and different than it is today. It's something called faith. Faith doesn't make life easy, y'all. Faith makes life, poss life possible. Mm -hmm. And we don't take steps of faith because we know every detail. They said there's a 50-50 chance. What I know is there's a 100% chance if I go back, I'll die. If I stay here, I'll die. But maybe if I jump, maybe if I jump, maybe if I jump, life will be better. Now consider their limitations. They were still leprous and considered unclean. But they made a decision in spite of their limitations to move forward. Are y'all ready? I'm about to close, y'all. Is that my second closing? Second closing. I got one more left. Second closing. Uh, clarity is the catalyst for change. But most of us, uh, change comes as a result of two things, typically. Inspiration or desperation. Some of us are inspired to change because we see a better, better possibility. Some of us only change when life gets desperate enough. Can I encourage you? 
Don't wait till life gets desperate to change. Have enough clarity to recognize moments of inspiration that God's sending you. And don't ignore them. Because every single day, God puts little miracles all around us to inspire us and encourage us to make the hard choices and to change. Let me tell you something else about change. It's not only the result of inspiration or desperation. Change will only happen, y'all. Change will only happen when the pain of remaining the same becomes greater than the discomfort and uncertainty of doing something different. Y'all hear that? Change only happens when the pain of remaining the same is greater than my discomfort of trying something new. I'll say that again. Change will occur when the pain of remaining the same becomes greater than the uncertainty of doing something new. Pain, I mean change will only come when the pain of remaining the same becomes greater than the uncertainty of doing something new. And most of us still suffering in silence because life hasn't become painful enough. And so we have no motivation to change. Mm, Okay. So change will do three things. Here it is. Change will do three things. Change will prompt you to change your routine. Can I say this to you? That success doesn't happen in a day, it happens daily. And that the secret to your success is found in your daily routine. If you keep doing the same thing over and over, you continue to incorporate the same habit forces, you'll continue to have what you've always had. So begin to examine your routine. Because what I get out of life is determined by what I put into life. If my routine is not bringing me closer to radical change and radical difference, I will still have what I've always had. And change will force me to examine my routine, what I do daily. Is it in front of the television? Is it reading a book? Is it meeting with mentors who can speak into my life? Is it talking to people who are wiser than I am, who can help me get to my next level? Or about just simply doing the same thing over and over because clarity will prompt us to change our routines, what we do. It will prompt us to change our reasoning, how we think. Can I say this to you? Your life and my life will never rise above my thoughts. In fact, your life and my life will always move in the direction of my most dominant thought. That's why Proverbs 3 verses 4 and 5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. If things are going to change in my life, not only my routines and my habits have to change, also my reasoning and my way of thinking, my thought patterns, my paradigms must now be renewed to the word of God. And number three, change or clarity will prompt you to change. Here's the last one. It will prompt you to change your relationships. If there's anything that hinders a great life, it's having wrong relationships. And sometimes the wrong relationships are the toughest thing for us to let go of. Notice these four lepers. Everything they said was we. 
everything they said was, we will go. We will do this. And the question then becomes, are you trying to live out your dream in a vacuum or do you have the right people around you to help you achieve the dream? In 2017, I think God is inviting each of us to clear the room. This is where I'm going to close. Final closing. Clear the room. Clear the room. And what do I mean by clear the room? You can't take everybody who has been in your life up until now where God is taking you. There are some relationships that you must sever. There are some things that you have to let go of. There are some people you have to say no to because those people are the ones holding you back. And it's going to be one of the toughest decisions that I have to make in 2017. And as you make those decisions, people are going to call you selfish. People are going to call you self-absorbed. But it's exactly what God needs of you, and it's exactly what you need for yourself. So I'm going to close with this. Mark chapter number five, Jesus cleared the room. In fact, Jesus was walking and a man named Jarius, who was a nobleman, comes up to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, come to my house. My daughter's almost died. I mean, she's dying. She's sick and she's almost dead. And Jesus says, sure, I'll come to your house. And so Jesus is on his way uh, to Jairus' house. And then a woman with an issue of blood comes up behind him and touches the hem of his garment. While Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house, the woman gets her miracle. The fascinating thing I love about the story is the fact that Jairus' daughter is 12 years old and this woman has had an issue of blood for 12 years. That means the year Jairus' daughter was born, this woman issue of blood started. So for 12 years, she had suffered and only grown worse. Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house. This woman reaches out and touches the hem of his garment. And, and, and while she does that, she receives her miracle and Jairus' daughter dies. Jairus gets word of it. And he says to, uh, uh, to Jesus, Master, don't even bother to come to my house. My daughter's dead. The thing I hoped you could do is gone. Have you ever been in that place where it seems you were that close to Jesus? Where it seems you were that close to your miracle? And then that miracle, in that moment, gone. And on the way to your miracle, somebody else got theirs. And your hope died. Jesus' response was, Jairus, do not be afraid. Only believe. In 2017, there are only two options. If you and I are going to do things that are radically different and radically better, you can only believe or be afraid. Even after somebody tells you this dream is dead, you have no hope. You've gotten the doctor's report. You've gotten the cancellation and the no from the bank. Jesus says, do not be afraid. Only believe. One of the toughest decisions that I will make in 2017 is to sever certain relationships because of where God is taking me. In fact, as I was praying, the Lord says, one of the things you're going to do in 2017 is you've got to clear the room. I'm going somewhere with this. Jesus is on his way, and, and, and he says to Jairus, uh, do not be afraid. Only Believe. And i got to read this for you verbatim because this will help you in 2017. Clear the room. Clear 
the room. Not only will, 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 will clarity cause you to challenge your routines and change your routines and change your reasoning the way you think, but it will cause you to carefully examine your relationships because of where he's taken you. Those relationships had a purpose until, up until now, but because of where God has taken you, there are relationships that must change. So in Mark chapter 5, Jesus comes to Jairus' house. And this is what it says in Mark chapter 5. And I promise you, as soon as I read this, I'm done. Did I say Mark chapter 5? Okay, here it is. Here's the verse. I'm finding it. All right. No, 35. Verse 35. The scripture says, while Jesus was still speaking, some came from the rule of the synagogue's house who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? That's where most of us live. Our hopes die, our dreams die, and we don't trouble God with them anymore. We stop praying, we stop believing, we stop asking. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not be afraid, only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. How many disciples did Jesus have? He took only three with him. Did Jesus love the other nine? Why did he take only three? Because there are certain places that God will take you in the days and the weeks and the months to come when it's not about the crowd. There are certain people you must leave behind because of what God has ahead of you. Listen, he only took three. Did Jesus love the other nine? Yes. Absolutely. Could he take him where he was going? Absolutely not. Can you take doubting Thomas to a resurrection? So, 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 so here's, here's where I, I wrap up. Can I use a different word instead of close? Here's where I wrap up. Here it is. Here it is. Verse 38. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. Jesus compassionate? Does Jesus love hurting people? This girl just died. Jesus shows up and these people are crying their eyes out. What did Jesus do? Verse 39, when he came in, he said to them, why make this commotion and weep? This baby ain't dead. She's asleep. Look at verse 40. They laughed at him. They laughed at him. They laughed at him. Let me tell you about radical faith. Radical faith will usually generate a response of ridicule. People will laugh at you. Laughed at Noah. Laughed at Abraham and Sarah. Jesus says this girl isn't dead. And so he continues, and they ridicule but when he had put them all outside. Somebody say clear the room. When he had put them all outside, when he cleared the room, the miracle happened. In 2017, clarity, when God opens your eyes to what's around you, he will make you clear the room of every mourner, of every jokester who's laughed at your dream, and every doubter who tries to put a damper on your dream. Let me tell you about the mourners. The mourners are the ones who always want the most attention. 
And I told you all about this, about EMTs and emergency. If you go to an accident scene, all right, because I learned this in the Army. You go to an accident scene and there's somebody yelling, that's the last person you want to go to. If they're screaming, it means they're alive. It means they're conscious and, they're, and their air passage is open. The person you want to help is the person who is unconscious, who may not be breathing and who cannot talk. Let me tell you about some of the friends we entertain in our lives. They're the ones who make the loudest noise. They're the ones who are always hanging on to us and draining us and always want our attention and always want special treatment. Jesus cleared the room of every mourner. The mourners in your lives will yell and try to distract you from the mandate and the mission God gave you. Clear the room. Clear the room of everyone who is trying to get more of your attention than they deserve. Because when Jesus showed up at the house, he didn't go there to comfort the mourners. He went there to raise Jairus' daughter. And I would venture to say that some of us are where we are. Because instead of focusing on Jairus' daughter, we've allowed the mourners to distract us. And Jesus walks in, and he prays for this girl. And the girl receives new life. Why is that important? Because sometimes your circle has to decrease in size in order to increase in value. That's what Jesus taught. In 2017, you will have to make some difficult decisions about who you do life with. There are certain people you just can't take there. There's, place, there's a place for the nine, and there's a place for the three. And if people are only going to mourn, and people are only going to ridicule the dream, and people are always going to push back on the dream, every time you talk and say something, they got a reason why it ain't going to happen. And when you say something... Their opinion's always contrary to what God's telling them to do. Right. Clear the room. Right. <clears throat> There's a place for them, but not in the room where you're supposed to be raising somebody back to life. Yes. And when that happens, we can experience convergence. There are three things that happen. The way the story ends is these four lepers, they go forward into the camp. And when they went into the camp, Nobody was there because God had caused the sound of their feet to sound like chariots and horses. So the Philistines abandoned the camp. And when the lepers showed up, they had left their horses. They had left their gold. They had left their silver. They had left their robes. And the four lepers walk in. And they had left all their food behind. Why do I say this? The four lepers made a decision for themselves. But in making that decision for themselves, it brought breakthrough and deliverance to the entire nation of Israel. When you get clarity from God, it will cause you to change some things. And when you change some things in your life, it will cause a convergence. It will cause a convergence of your choices and God's purposes. Let me tell you something. In 2017, your decisions are not only about you. Your decisions are directly connected to what God desires to do in the earth. And the only way life will be radically better is when you and I choose to do something radically different. And in doing something radically different, God will challenge my reasoning. He will challenge my routine. But more than anything, he will challenge your relationships. And you're going to have to clear the room. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that you will seal this word in our hearts.